so much of the language around religion is structured in terms of binaries. Are you a believer or not a believer? Do you have faith or do you not have faith? And, you know, these, these binaries are promoted both by the religious, you know, and by the secular. It's like they want to put people into boxes. Belief comes from the Latin word to have faith in, but originally that meant who do you follow? Not, not what concepts do you think are true? Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. I don't have much to go into today. I do want to give you an overview of today's participant, some of the backstory, and uh, of course hit some of the highlights for information, but today's uh, intro will be kind of brief. So the participant that you heard from a moment ago is Dr. Aaron Prophet. And I'm grateful to Aaron for a number of reasons, including the fact that I tend to read a lot of the sciences and it's just more academic reading and while I did get to read a couple of her papers one in particular on charisma which I thought was um, was important uh, her memoir the prophet's daughter provided me a little bit of uh, just different different imaginal space and and it helps with this real fundamental question about so many of us and it's not just religious studies it's not just psychology it's it's so many traditions um, academic traditions wherein we we have an experience and then we spend oftentimes the rest of our lives trying to make sense of that experience and whether that's something that dr. Mauro Ferrari and however many episodes I talked to him he was talking about the what happens in the imagination for a mathematician to envision something and then spend years trying to put form to it. Let's, he compared that to the same kind of process that happens with a sculptor. And, and, and also somebody in religious studies who has a wild experience like Aaron did in her development and tries to understand it and, as she referenced at one point, tries to get beneath it. So Erin, she, she, be, she begins her book talking about her mother, who is Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and along with her father, Mark Prophet, both were these charismatic figures who led a religious movement, and it goes under the heading of New Religious Movement. And that also goes in the heading of the not-so-attractive label of a cult. And while that, of course, wouldn't be the, the word that she would necessarily use, it is a new religious movement and has beliefs and kind of an orientation and a leader, just like any other tradition. And the, what was interesting about this group is that given the nature of uh, her mother, uh, Elizabeth's prophecies and her, charism, her 
charisma. People were following her, doing some pretty interesting things like giving up all of their money and kind of contributing to building bomb shelters right, right outside of Yellowstone National Park in the late 80s. And at one point she says that these, these shelters were built to hold around 2,000, maybe 3,000 people with food for years. And when people take so seriously and so literally what is being prophesized or what's being imagined, some interesting things happen. And I just, I, I find it so important to talk to somebody like Aaron to understand what her upbringing was like and her existing affection for her mother and a deeper understanding of what was happening. And in particular, what she mentioned earlier, the nature of belief, the nature of what we follow, and then what we take literally. And for anybody that thinks they don't make those same... um, what do I want to say there? They they don't, they, anybody thinks that they don't do that needs to take another look at their lives. Because so often, even on a daily basis, I imagine that we have something that happens inside of us, in our imagination, for example, that we take literally and act on. Our imagination has power, a lot of power that we often take for granted. But I find that fascinating, and I also find it fascinating that people so easily kind of uh, are dismissive to uh, you know those people that do that. When when oftentimes when we're pointing the finger, we need to point it back to ourselves. <laughs> so okay, that was that was a lot. So I want to hit a couple of notes that are important. The first being Aaron. Uh, Aaron, I want to read a bit of her bio. Aaron Prophet is a scholar of religion with interests in alternative spirituality and medicine. She has a master's degree in public health from Boston University and received her PhD from Rice University in May of 2018. Her dissertation examines the 19th century appropriation of evolution as a form of personal improvement and self-transcendence. It is entitled Evolution Esotericized, Conceptual Blending and the Emergence of Secular Therapeutic Salvation. She's currently a lecturer in Religion, Nature, and Health at the University of Florida. Get her at www.eprofit.com. E-P-R-O-P-H-E-T dot info. So onward, um, and uh, let me, before I jump ship there, let me tell um, Aaron, thank you for the time and uh, certainly for writing the book and uh, what you do. And also for co-writing one of my favorite books, Comparing Religion, along with Jeff Kripal. That was a very helpful and very important book for me. Okay, so music, theme music for the podcast is Modern Nation. Look them up at Modern Nation Music modernnationsmusic.com. Band of the week is Mills & Co. Taylor Craig Mills is an old friend of mine. I'm excited to use some of his music for uh, the show today. And check the liner notes of the podcast to look at links. You can look up um, this website at thesacredspeaks.com. Check out the Instagram under The Sacred Speaks. Twitter, same thing. Facebook, same thing. Okay, the podcast is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences in Houston. And you can look that up at the Center for H-A-S, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S dot com. Instagram handle is Center for H-A-S. For Taylor Craig Mills, the 
music that you've heard, the first song is a snippet from uh, from his album, Don't, e- Don't Ever Look Back Twice. First song is Nine Lives. At the end of the episode, I'll play Don't Ever Look Back Twice, the title song, title track of the album. And thanks, Taylor, for the use of the music. What else? Anything else? I don't think so. Okay, we'll call it there. Oh, uh, other thing. Uh, Aaron, at one point, was talking about an Ayn Rand book, and the book is Anthem. Um, she couldn't uh, grab it when we were talking, but later kind of sent me a message, said, oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, okay. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. Well, so maybe, yeah, maybe we start just, you know, go wherever you like, because I'll, I'll follow and ask questions and I'll make notes and let you kind of flow. But I, I am curious for, for any listener just to get oriented to, you know, introduce to you and your work first. Um, so wherever you like to start that, please begin it and then we'll see where it goes. Sure. Well, I'm now in my second year uh, as a professor of religious studies, and I started on that journey about seven years ago. But my choice to become an academic and a scholar of religion was informed by my upbringing. And uh, and I grew up in a really interesting New Age group that uh, was involved in a fair amount of controversy, but was also, you know, pretty fun and interesting place to be in the sense of it attracted all kinds of of um, different sort of fringe types, you know, people who are, who are interested in pyramids or, um, you know, Atlantis or, you know, and these were the kinds of people I was, we were talking to, would come over and visit for dinner the whole time I was growing up. So, I guess it sort of gave me an advantage when I began studying Western esotericism because I felt like I was finally able to get the backstory about so many of these ideas that I had been exposed to throughout my life. No doubt. I, I think, um, well, the first thing is, can we define that for, for, for our conversation, but also for folks listening? Western esotericism, what is that? Sure, sure. Well, I... Uh, I suppose the the discipline of what studying West, Western esotericism really didn't get started until the 1990s because prior to that it was the study of all those things that were embarrassing either to Western science or traditional you know Protestant uh, or institutionalized religion. So things like magic, um, and so there have been a lot of definitions of esotericism. The two that I like the best are one that it is focused on the individual transformation into a divine being, and two that it's based on rejected rejected knowledge. And you could look at, you know, Wouter Hanegraaff is sort of one of the people who's helped define the discipline, and he thinks that the, the focus on sort of internal, personal, spiritual development and divinization, which means sort of the process by which a human is seen to take on divine characteristics, uh, that, that that is one of the key components of Western esotericism. But he also looks at it sort of as rejected knowledge, which would include, you know, all this, the, you know, magic and witchcraft and 
um, you know, divination and all of these kinds of things that good sort of church going religious people don't like to talk about. <laughs> would you would you compare the what we're talking about with esotericism with Gnosticism? What's the difference? Well, I believe it's argued that so esoteric actually sort of means hidden mm -hmm. or secret. And the many of the people who are you know, important figures of the history of Western esotericism defined their teaching as something which had been hidden, which was only revealed to certain initiated people, certain people who had, you know, satisfied certain requirements. And you could look at, for example, Rosicrucianism mm -hmm. as, as sort of a classic type of esoteric formulation. But um, I think that Gnosticism you know, of course, it comes from the, the term gnosis, which um, comes from really knowledge, right? And it it's sort of formed around the first century BCE in the ancient world. And of course, this term has been taken up and used by different groups at different times. April DeConnick has, you know, a wonderful kind of network historicism method that she kind of applies to how Gnosticism has traveled and transformed over time. And they've done a lot of very interesting work on it at Rice. But I think in contemporary times, Gnosticism can also kind of overlap with Western esotericism in the sense that many people see it as being more harmonious with personal spirituality. But if you look at Gnosticism in its sort of classical sense, it was often about the view that the world was created by sort of an evil being and that the goal of life was to somehow get outside of the world or, um, you know, escape. And that people, you know, that the soul was sort of lost in the world, in the material world. And so there's been a lot of debate about whether uh, you could, you can be a Gnostic and sort of be comfortable in the world and be comfortable in the body because many Gnostics were either quite ascetic or, um, you know, there were also Gnostic groups that advocated sort of more licentious or what were seen as licentious acts, but they were often performed in a ritual context as a way of getting out of this world somehow. And so um, I think you, you've got Gnostic formulations all over the place in literature and film and I think it's it's kind of a moving category, just like soul or psyche or you know mm -hmm. mind. Yeah, it can't be it can't be contained very easily. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, I I, I want to do the tending to the to the academic piece because I can't wait to after you give part of your personal experience. I I can't wait to talk about how wonderful it is that you jumped into the study of religion and how exciting that must be to kind of understand what in the world goes on in uh, these very interesting ways that people make sense of uh, mystery. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm curious, could you, could you kind of tend to that? What is this church that you grew up in and uh, for however long that takes to kind of just give a bit of an ex explanation for folks listening? Sure. Well, my parents were both 
deeply influenced by Western esoteric traditions. Their names were Mark Prophet and Elizabeth Clare Prophet. My mother was born Elizabeth Clare Wolf, and she took on my father's name. And a lot of people think it's a made up name because it sounds a little fantastic <laughs> that someone would both claim to be a. <laughs> and and have that name but it actually was my father's real name in fact his second cousin is ronnie prophet the country musician i don't know if you know have ever, ever heard of ronnie prophet but uh, i don't but i'm gonna check it out <laughs> he died he died a few years ago but uh anyway so my parents mark and elizabeth prophet were influenced a lot by theosophy which is a system of looking at the world that gathered a lot of Western esoteric concepts together and sort of argued that ancient Gnosticism was sort of the true doctrine behind all the world religions and that the religions were essentially the same if one looked at the underlying truths and discarded the, um, you know, the trappings of different rituals and, and doctrines. So, uh, that was, you know, it's it's an appealing belief system, and I think it's pervaded society in many ways, but the particular brand of theosophically influenced religion that my parents were a part of was fairly ascetic. I mean, the notion was that um, sexuality was something to be overcome and that it was sort of needed for, you know, uh, reproduction and there were possible other purposes but for you know by and large it was probably better for your spiritual life if you were primarily celibate so um there were a lot of ways that my parents modified and tried to modernize some of the theosophical ideas that they you know came in contact with they were part of they had drawn a lot of their early followers from this group called the I am religious activity, which was fairly large in the 1930s. And when I say fairly large, I mean, it had maybe 50 to 100,000 followers. It wasn't huge, but it was kind of an offshoot of new thought and kind of mixed in some theosophy. And there were a lot of fairly intelligent, wealthy people who were associated with the IM activity. So when my parents sort of came into that system and that mythology, they couldn't exactly change it or modify it in too great a way because they, they, um, that was, you know, where their followers were coming from. That was basically their entire income and their support. So um, I grew up watching them you know, take messages which were called dictations from divine beings. Um, you know, they were giving these sort of channeled messages from Jesus, from Gautama Buddha, from different masters that had been part of the Rosicrucian pantheon, such as Saint Germain. Um, the masters M or Moria and Kuthumi were people that were believed to be divine beings that had been human and that had sort of transitioned into a state of ascension through their initiations. So there was this notion that everybody in the group could eventually be transformed into a master and perhaps, you know, work certain, you know, that sort of miracles would kind of flow from them in terms mm -hmm. of healing and other 
um, you know, other divine gifts. And so there was, um, both of my parents had grown up in a Christian tradition and they were, they used the Bible a lot, uh, which was kind of different from the way that theosophists were because the theosophists um, thought that Christianity was um, kind of a distortion. And, you know, my mother, uh, she became best known, her best known book was called The Lost Years of Jesus. And she argued that Jesus was in India and that a lot of the uh, certain aspects of Christianity could easily be harmonized with Eastern ideas. And this is something that was also taught by people like Yogananda and Vivekananda, some of the people that early on brought Hindu ideas to America. They tried to present it in a way that, that made the, you know, the harmony of the world's religions um, seem to be sort of the obvious choice and that the differences were minimized between these these belief systems. So um, I sort of thought that was just a natural way of looking at the world. I didn't realize, you know, I mean, I knew that, you know, some people would be offended by being told that Christianity and Buddhism were the same, but, you know, there are a lot of people who think that way today. And so when people hear about my parents and they hear about the channeling and they hear about the masters and some of the crazy beliefs, they, they often overlook and they don't really uh, get that there was a, you know, there was a very fulfilling and useful belief system that people practiced to make their everyday lives better, in, you know, in some way. And there were a lot of, you know, families, married couples, educated people, professionals who were in their group. And it certainly um, it attracted uh, people from, I would say, who had been in other esoteric groups who were looking for some kind of dynamic community where they could practice things that they already believed in. So um, if you want, at a certain point, we can certainly talk about my article on charisma because I've often reflected upon my parents' gifts and their relationship with their followers and mm -hmm. sort of what was um, what was holding the group together, why people joined. And I did, you know, I, I saw plenty of what I would call kind of uh, synchronistic happenings within the group that sort of reinforced and cemented people's attitude that, you know, that they had made the right choice, that this, that this was a source of truth and wisdom and healing and life for them. And, you know, I think that explains a lot about why people choose to join groups that to to an outsider might seem to be strange. But um, at a certain point in my life, so I grew up in the church. I went to college. I went to USC in Southern California, but I was most of the time living on the church property. I didn't, I wasn't really a normal college student. And uh, I went immediately after graduation to the ranch that we had bought in Montana. So the church was headquartered in Los Angeles for 10 years. Before that, it, it was in Colorado. It was founded in Washington, DC. My father died in 1973. And so then my mother moved to California and the church went through a period of expansion. It had a pretty large property in, in uh, the Santa Monica mountains. Uh, and so that's pretty much where I was in high school and college. And then uh, we moved to Montana in the mid 80s 
And my mother had begun sort of giving prophecies of nuclear war and other kinds of cataclysm. And, but, you know, I mean, if you scratch before the we, surface... Before we jump in, sorry to interrupt. I, I, yeah, that's okay. I, don't, I want to be sensitive not to reflect back for you your own life, but I have some knowledge now that I've read your... Your, your work. And, and I think that, you know, when you said earlier, you know, not the typical childhood, not the typical college student, you tended a lot to that in your book. And it, it was an interesting tension to pay attention to, which which is that you had this, well, again, tension between your obligations to the family and to the church, and then these really understandable urges and desires to kind of live out a part of your life that would be associated with a kind of, quote, typical uh, adolescence, typical college experience. Can, can you speak to some of, some of that tension for a sec before we move into the Montana piece? Sure. Well, the church's attitude towards children is sort of interesting because, you know, and it's a tension that you would find in any group that sort of valorizes the individual that the individual has a connection with the divine and sort of knows what's best. And then the idea that there are leaders, that there are teachers, masters, gurus, who can sort of see your past or your future better than you can. And so there was, there was this dynamic tension in the church's uh, teachings. And so for me growing up, on the one hand, I was often put on a pedestal that I was, you know, I had, you know, very spiritual past life. I was someone who was destined to lead the group in the future, that I had a mission and a purpose. And I was, you know, I had a lot of special training uh, in order to fulfill that purpose. And, you know, in terms of um, we had our own school, there were a lot of people who spent a lot of time teaching us how to speak properly, you know, how to, um, we had a lot of dramatic productions that we did that were sort of designed to prepare us to be future leaders of the group. And so, and then there was the mythology, which kind of came out of the I am books, which sort of had this notion that children who had sort of advanced spiritual past lives would not need to experience, for example, you know, the, the pleasures of the flesh, you know, that they would have sort of less, interest in sexuality and things like that and so when it turned out that i was sort of an you know a normal teenager in many ways who wanted to date um wanted to have a boyfriend you know then there was kind of a little bit of a clash there and i was also only 15 when i started college so i was much younger than the other students so um, you know, I've, I've since realized, I mean, there were some Saudi princesses at USC who were dropped off to class in their limousine and picked up afterwards. And that's kind of how I was. I, I had a guard drop me off and I would go to class and then I would get picked up. You know, so I wasn't at least the first two and a half years of school. I was not um, I was I didn't make any friends. I didn't know anyone on campus. So it was it was very different. And the last year I sort of insisted that I needed to be allowed to go and live in a dorm and I did but I was still going home every weekend and it, you know it was it was never um it was never what you might think of as sort of yeah the if, ideal if I could get in your experience if, if I could get in your head for a second I I'm just imagining 
what what kind of conflicts you had going on? I mean, were were there or or when you're when you're in that kind of situation? And I think about something you said in your um, shadow talk at the Young Center. When you're in that situation, which is essentially what a lot of uh, th- those those faith traditions that believe in reincarnation they talk about the the kind of chosen one. You know, so you have this chosen one who's picked very early on, and uh, you know, what's that like for somebody to feel that weight from the entirety of the, you know, your, your whole known world. Well, I think about it every time I see people imagining that their child is some reincarnated Tibetan Lama or something, you know, and I think, and I'd like to say to those parents, you know, you really have no idea what you're doing to your child. Um, You really need to allow them, you know, every child needs boundaries, but, to put a child on a pedestal and to not, and to on the one hand, you know, make them feel that they are special and that everything they do has some kind of cosmic significance. But on the other hand, that everyone expects that they are going to step into a spiritual role without ever going out and having a job or having real friends or, you know, anything like that, I think is can be quite damaging. And one of the interesting things I studied at Rice is, you know, how there are these Tibetan tulkus who are selected as children who do not work out for one reason or another. You know, we all have this image that they go out and they select the Dalai Lama or they select some, uh, you know, someone as the reincarnation of, you know, an important Lama and the inevitably inexorably this person actually takes on the characteristics they're believed to have and i was really surprised to learn that actually that's not true and that sometimes the these boys don't work out and they just sort of disappear into the monastic system and you know then there are also some who have come out and basically said they didn't want to be in that role. And then they're very confused about what it is they do want to be. Do they want to be a rock star? I mean, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's something that I think my parents probably have said in, in retrospect that they would not have done had they known, you know, what all the consequences might be. I think they were learning and there was certainly this culture, you know, this mythology around sort of holy children. And so I've, you know, in my academic work, I've, I've read a lot about children and new religious movements and, you know, some, some groups and, you know, you can use the word cult, some people do, or new religious movement. Um, some of them don't think children are important at all. Others, you know, see their children as extremely important, perhaps of doc, some kind of doctrinal significance. And so, you know, if your child is born and declared to have sort of no karma or very, you know, highly advanced karma in some way, then, you know, that can put an in, incredible burden on the child, you know, to sort of prove, prove either prove the spiritual teacher right, you know, and I've read, I've read um, memoirs by other children who've been brought up in in Hindu or Buddhist influenced religious movements and who've come to the same point that I did where they felt that you know hey I I like this group I like many of the things about it but I'm I don't feel that I'm 
the person you think I am, you know, much as I would like to be that person. And so it took me a, quite a while to get to the point where I was, where I had to say, look, I have to sort of leave and leave everything behind and not, um, you know, without the idea that I may come back. But it was, you know, it was very difficult to do that. And it certainly happened in phases. Well, this this thought, if we can kind of bring this into, you know, John and Jane's world and, you know, middle <laughs> America, it, it's like the same stuff I see in my practice when you have a, a parent who th imagines their child to be a baseball player and they, you know, mm -hmm. you know, they do. All so this happens. There's, there's certainly a spectrum here, you know, and, you know, you know, there is an enormous conflict that we see in children who are going, holy shit, I got like, on the one hand, I've got my, my father who's imagining me to be X, Y, or Z. And then, you know, but I don't really want to do that. That film, Billy Elliot, was great about this, where you've got this, you know, blue collar family and this guy just wants to dance, you know. And so, mm -hmm. but what's the, the fascinating thing is that you're dealing with these kind of metaphysical realities and, and an entire collective that's around it. I, I just can't, uh, that, that certainly compounds the energy field, if we can put it that way, uh, of expectation onto you. Sure, definitely. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why I stayed as long as I did and why I worked as hard as I did. You know, as an adult after college, I worked for seven years um, at the church and for my mother. And I helped, I, I had been a journalism major and I helped her write her books and her lectures. And I sort of became a, almost, you know, an important part of her ministry. And so it was even worse for me to leave then when I was 27 years old, instead of when I was 17 or 18, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, my memoir is certainly a slice of my life, but it's, there was a whole lot that I didn't get to include in it. And a lot of what I didn't get to include was my intellectual development. I mean, I think that people, you know, wanted me to sort of be an innocent, but I wasn't completely an innocent. I was very, pretty well read, you know, even while I was in the group, I believed strongly in a lot of the things that we were doing. And, um, you know, there were intellectual areas that I wanted to explore that I wasn't permitted to. And that was another reason I, I left because, you know, I was being told that I, I couldn't pollute my mind by reading certain things. And what kind of know. stuff is that? <laughs> um, well, it was interesting, you know, when I was 12, I read, I, I'm a little embarrassed to say, um, cause I read, um, Ayn Rand's book. Um, I think it was called, is it called we, um, anyway, that was, it was kind of pivotal for me. I was 12 and the, the notion that a person is important because of what they want to do and not because of what the collective wants them to do. Now, mm -hmm. I'm by no means a libertarian at this point in my life, but for me, it was sort of liberating to read that book because I felt that my I should be valuable for anything that I chose to do or think and not because of my role in the group. Um, you know, but obviously I didn't, I kept going. But the, some of the things I wasn't supposed to read, I wasn't supposed to read fiction because that was seen as sort of illusion. Hmm. And um, and I mean, my mother was training me to become 
um, a messenger like she was. And, um, you know, she was not a fiction reader at all. She, you know, she read some of the theosophical books. She read a lot of nonfiction and um, she read the Bible and religious texts. And so, you know, I always enjoyed reading fiction. <laughs> and um, did you, sneak you know, in it? some ways she... Yeah, I used to read under the covers, and then after I began training formally to be a messenger, I, I really had to be careful not to, but I would yeah. read biographies and things like that, and then I was doing research. We were doing a lot of past life readings, um, and I felt that I should read biographies of the people we were doing past life readings for, on famous people, <laughs> for sort of didactic purposes, and um, I began to realize and understand that a lot of the stories that we knew from the Bible were just stories and that that there had been, you know, creation of a mythology in these sacred texts and that they couldn't be taken literally. And I was sort of surprised that my parents, you know, I, I think that they were open. I mean, my mother read Elaine Pagel's The Gnostic Gospels in the 1980s, and I think it informed a lot of her teachings and her ideas. And in some ways, she was quite progressive in the sense of wanting women to be able to be priests and, you know, ministers. And she trained and promoted women in her organization. Obviously, she's a female leader, you know. But in other ways, she was um, somewhat, you might, you people might have considered her regressive uh, when it comes to, you know, women's roles, because, you know, she didn't, she encouraged women to have careers, but she also, um, you know, had other people taking care of her own children. Um, and she encouraged people to have a lot of children without necessarily knowing how they were going to raise them or take care of them, you know, in a sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it brings up an important, uh, maybe we tended to it enough earlier, but the beliefs of the church you know it it seems that then please interrupt and correct any of this but it seems that there's a, the the fundamental belief is that there's a synthesis of all these different masters and so earlier when you said messaging is, is essentially there's an individual who's trained to kind of tap into that uh communicative line or or whatever that that channels the messenger and is able to then dictate what the messenger says uh, to the larger audience, but there were there were rules around who could do that. And could you talk about that? Right. Sure. So um, I mean, my parents' belief system was that everyone has a higher self and everyone can communicate with their higher self and through their higher self, also through divine beings such as Jesus Christ or, you know, Catholic saints or others. Um, but the only ones who were actually permitted to give the group direction were the messengers. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that when you have a group that's based on the idea that everyone is sort of a potential divine being, right, a potential God, you have the stages set for conflicts over authority. And my parents were dealing with this from their very early years in the late 50s, early 60s, because there were other people in their group that started getting messages from divine beings and saying, well, I think we should do this, or I think this is the truth. And so the, the belief system was just fraught with schisms. My father split off from the woman that he started the group with, 
to begin with before my mother came along. You know, so there was this constant arguments over what was the true divine doctrine, you know. And so it's sort of like, yes, we can all channel, but some people are channeling, you know, different things than others. So, but it sounds the, familiar. I mean, what's the true doctrine? Where that that argument's played out all over the place, even today, right? Exactly. I mean, it's you know, Christianity has the same problem. If you have someone that believes that God is speaking to them, they may you know come in conflict with the institutional church, and sometimes they're able to do it within the institution, like Saint Francis was able to do, and sometimes they're declared heretical, and you have you know all kinds of examples. But within our group, it was all centered around who had the right to speak for the masters or to get messages from the masters. And that's where I felt the system really started to break down. That was mm. one of the reasons why I had to leave when I was when I was 27. And, you know, they still hadn't really solved the problem. Um, my mother died in 2009. Um, the church still exists. It's headquartered in Montana, but they don't have any approved uh, messenger at this point. So, I mean, I broke off being trained to be a messenger, but while I was in that training, I, um, you know, I took some dictations that were later published by the group, but I was not given credit because that would have sort of elevated me and people would have started, you know, following me. And I think that my mother thought that could be a dangerous thing. So there was definitely some tension there, but, um, because I was in training to be a messenger, I wasn't supposed to um, expose my mind to too many out, outside influences. And there was there were, was also a large a mythology around, you know, sexual activity and that mm -hmm. sexual activity could be detrimental to someone being a messenger. And this really, really wasn't my parents' fault. It goes back to Blavatsky. Blavatsky had to sort of claim to be a celibate and... You know, I think that she was celibate during the period of her life after she founded the group, but she had to sort of pretend that she had never had sex and that, you know, she had never had a relationship, that her marriage wasn't consummated. And, I mean, you know, we can talk more about this if it's something you're interested in exploring. Obviously, sexuality is kind of what led me to per my pursuit of Jungian psychoanalysis and, um, my interest in Carl Jung and eventually it led me to uh, Jeff Kripal and his books and it led me to the <laughs> Wright University and, and my program there. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to have some really perceptive and supportive analysts along the way, including two who were in the church, you know, I mean, as I said, the church attracted a lot of, you know, very well-meaning and intelligent people. And, you know, I feel that, that there were a lot, of, some of the problems came about because of the problems in the tradition that were innate, that were there from the beginning. And some of the problems came about because the people in the group, you know, couldn't see beyond a certain point. And they were very invested in their dogmatic belief that my mother was the only messenger and that, you know, that these divine beings were giving unprecedented revelations through her and i get into that a little bit in my charisma article as as i'm thinking about i have a ton of areas to go here as i'm thinking about your your book one thing that keeps standing out is 
is the idea that you're really able to see how a particular belief system, when almost possessed by that belief system, one has to live it out to its furthest conclusion, avoiding any dissonance that that the individual encounters along the way. And so then there are these kind of, um, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, but there are these like guard guardian guardrails or guard mechanisms that are put in place to, mm-hmm. to kind of avoid the, the conflicts that that dissonant belief structure creates. I mean, the, the, the fact is that there is a trajectory of these belief systems. And that's one thread I want to pay attention to throughout our conversation. Cause I, when the way you wrote it, you could really just see how you're, you're, you're articulating that system that from that Jungian lens, we would say there's a possession of the, and, and not to give away too much, but there's a possession of that apocalyptic archetype and that that kind of takes over and creates um, a, essentially a conflict that one can't avoid. So one has to continuously double down on their, you know, uh, for all kinds of reasons that I want to get to. But I, but I want to, with, with that in mind, I also want to kind of back up a little bit and get maybe a little linear because at one point we we um, hit a tangent when you were talking about your teenage years about to move to Montana and you began to speak about your mother having these dictations that were talking about an apocalyptic, um, uh, I mean, and, and eventually it turned into a particular time where the nuclear war was going to happen. But I, 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 if we back up into something, and you can go into sexuality if you'd like, but we're talking about teenage years, Montana, your development, and how you're dealing with these urges and influences that you're having from a societal perspective, being exposed to folks at USC, but also your family. And I'll just lob that out there for you to see where you want to go. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you do sort of get into this moment when, you know, you have children and it's been prophesied that these children are going to take on a, a dynamic role in in the group and they begin to be teenagers and they begin to sort of act like normal teenagers then there's a sense of what is causing them to behave this way and it's seen as perhaps being evil outside forces and one of the things that you know one of the core elements of the belief system is that you can use these positive affirmations to sort of change yourself. And so we were expected to sort of use these prayers and affirmations to transform our desires and to, you know, turn them into something higher or something more divine. And, you know, I don't really want to talk about my siblings because they each have their own story. But what I can say for myself is that, you know, I, simply struggled with it there were times when i did you know go to a party or have alcohol or something like that but i was always quite afraid to you know fully participate in the culture because i felt that i would be letting everybody down and Mm -hmm. i didn't want to do that and so that's why i sort of um you know fled to montana in a sense i was fleeing my own uh sensuality uh in some way and i think you know, there was this sense that we're getting away from all of this sort of bad energy around the city, you know, where, and it's it's not certainly not the first time that you've had, you know, religious people going out into the desert, in a sense, so to speak, and isolating themselves from corrupting influences of civilization. But 
you know, at, at USC, I could listen to, I listened to radio, I listened to popular music and things. And uh, when we were in Montana, we didn't even yet have radio reception at that time at the ranch. There were no cell phones. We had some TV news that would be videotaped that we could watch, you know, but we really had very limited we didn't. We didn't get any television reception either. So okay, I'm gonna was... interrupt. What kind of music? I have a huge music interest. What <laughs> What music were you listening to, and what were your thoughts when you heard music that you kind of quote weren't supposed to be listening to? <laughs> well, we had always, um, you know, we'd be in stores and things, and we would hear sort of popular rock and roll music, or we'd hear music in commercials on television and things. So there were certain t- shows that we could watch that were approved. In, um, you know, when we were growing up in California, it's like we could watch I Love Lucy or something and there would be <laughs> ads and things. Um, so it wasn't like we were in a complete box, you know, hermetically sealed. But, you know, I think there were just times it was felt that the, the rhythm of these of this music was spiritually destructive and that if we sort of moved our bodies to the music that it was going to um, destroy the alignment of our chakras and it was going to reduce the flow of spiritual energy that we had available to us. And so, and really what they meant is it was going to make you move your hips in a way that they didn't want you to. Exactly. It was going to make (laughs) us move our hips. So we were only allowed ever to do um, square dancing, waltzing and foxtrot. You know, it wasn't quite like, you know, the dirty dancing scenario, but (laughs) um, the film, you know, where, you know, but I think they tried to create sort of an alternative reality for us where we had some social life in this contained, you know, church high school that was supposed to prevent us from wanting to go out and be like all everyone else. But it didn't work that well. And a lot of the students left a lot of the students as they became older they you know would just go out, out and go to a normal school because they either couldn't keep the rules or they didn't want it to you know mm-hmm. be in that situation so um the the church experimented with a lot of different ways of childbearing and i think now they probably are much more open to allowing their their um teenagers to integrate with um people their own age but you know i think that when you look at the history of new religious movements a lot of times the first generation is that experimental one it's like we're going to remake and transform the world and then maybe the second or the third generation things change a little bit so my story is certainly not the, the only story and there are children who had been in my mother's church who grew up who who went on to become have successful careers in entertainment and um what's that guy the chef the um the bionic chef um he is garcia eduardo garcia he grew up there and he now has his own cable television cooking show so you know (laughs) um it's not like they are all in some way you know unbalanced a lot Mm -hmm. of them actually have talent artistic talents that they're pursuing (laughs) well yeah you 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 maybe this is a a jumping point, but you talked a lot about the inner and the outer teachings. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) again, if we're looking from a linear perspective, what, where we are is you're in this conflict. And I mean, 
in order to uh, certainly we can go off on a shadow conversation but in order to avoid the your 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 urges or your sensuality that's no doubt developing you 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 know leaving the city life you were kind of believing that to be bad is that correct like those those feelings and thoughts that was like okay gosh i'm being corrupted here and it's a pollutant so i need to go to the area where it's going to be safe well what i what i finally realized is that we th those of us who were at of high school age and this time we moved to montana or you know young adults we were sort of the we were the projection of all the hopes and fears of all of these adults who were around us who were baby boomers who had been through the sexual revolution and you know gotten into drugs and we were supposed to be the, re the reverse of that we were supposed to be the exact opposite we weren't supposed to have to experience any of those things and hmm. many of the people that we grew up around were extremely threatened by you know the counterculture mm -hmm. Um, felt very uncomfortable with it, were, you know, watching what was going on with drugs and wanted to ha sort of raise pure children in a sense. <laughs> yeah. So so there was that. Um, but a lot of it had to do with the, the filter. I mean, s some of my friends had parents who had different rules for them, or one parent would be in the church and one would be out of it. So they would, you know, they would have sort of more balance more perspective in their lives but i think my i one of the things that really made me decide to leave was that i realized that you know in a sense my mother had had her own period where she was you know experimenting with sexuality in college and that she had sort of denied me the right to do that myself and i felt that that was kind of a real betrayal and i was not happy about that and i was actually working on writing her biography <laughs> and uh so you know it's just like it's like the the kid who goes and finds pot in his dad's underwear drawer you know what i mean it's like <laughs> what do you mean? oh yeah mom yeah. you had sex yeah yeah whatever so you know, and it was just magnified 10 times worse. You know, yeah. my poor mother, she couldn't ever, she couldn't ever portray herself as someone who was a sexual being because she was supposed to be this person who was speaking to divine beings. And so in a sense, I think I I fault the, the tradition, the entire yeah. tradition. I mean, it's possible that there is something ontological about celibacy that makes somehow makes people more open to divine gifts i don't know if that's true or not but i will say that both of my parents had sex and they were both you know supposedly receiving these these uh messages and performing healings and doing all kinds of things while they were also having sex and i think a lot of people um you know who had been part of that tradition i mean rosicrucian tradition it said that you know the adept the initiate is the celibate one and you know how Blavatsky claiming she was celibate, the IM leaders claimed that they were celibate, they had one child and they had not had sex again ever, <laughs> you know, and, and there were a lot of people who had pledged to have celibate marriages even, a lot of marriages in the IM group broke up over that. So, I mean, I think a lot of this is about, you know, permission to author and what does it, you know, what does it mean to be, have permission to, you know, change religious doctrine and 
is celibacy, you know, or abstention from alcohol or things like that, or meat as well, you know, is that a requirement for someone to have the uh, authority to communicate with divine beings? I mean, certainly the way that these traditions were brought over from India would seem to suggest that, right? That the, the some of the people who, you know, were involved in helping construct theosophy as well as who brought Hinduism and Buddhism to the West um, certainly valorized the celibate mm -hmm. over the householder. You know, and I, and I know that if you, you know, study Hindu and Buddhist traditions, you might see that there, there are lay traditions, there are um, traditions where householders are also seen as having spiritual gifts, but um, the monastic tradition certainly, you know, had more staying power and were the more prominent ones that were communicated to the West. And the idea that you can transcend some of the kind of base bodily urges in, in order to ascend to a higher consciousness, I'm, I'm assuming that's kind of the, the thread there. Exactly. That eventually you would no longer need sex for reproduction in the future. Your, your body would simply sort of evaporate into a higher mode of existence. You would become a being of absolute light. You would not need to eat eat anymore. So there was this myth, this whole mythology that had grown up, which is why there was such, you know, sort such a, you know, you might say a tangled thicket, a sleeping beauty hedge castle around this around this, you know, castle of our That's existence, which was yeah, this notion that we were somehow we were and we had divine gifts because of our behavior, yeah. you know, because of our and because of our great karma from the past. So um, it was, I think ultimately this mythology was kind of destructive to my mother herself, that she had to sort of cover up her humanity. Um, people were constantly criticizing her for even something like eating meat. Um, you know, she went through different phases in her life of being vegetarian or eating meat. So some her followers saw her eating meat and decided she couldn't be a true messenger because she was eating meat. So. You know, I just think the idea that there were messengers and that these messengers were validated because of their behavior and their charismatic gifts, you might say, of healings that they bestowed upon people that they demonstrated. Um, you know, I think that, that that it's very difficult for anyone to keep that up over long well, periods. And, and that we need to, this. This is just my, my one of my areas of interest. This shows up in you know, parents all the time when, when parents are like, Oh no, you know, I didn't, I didn't get drunk when I was a kid. You know, I never, um, you know, that, that kind of, you're, you're trying to maintain a particular, um, projection essentially, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to assert some ideal of what a perfect life or a good life is for your kids. But if we blow that out into the realm of uh, whether it's monarchies or celebrities or, religious leaders, charismatic leaders. And in our culture, we see a lot, it a lot with celebrities. You know, we, if a celebrity falls down in the street, you know, we mock the hell out of them because, you know, they've fallen off their pedestal. And so these folks are walking around with expectations that they must act a certain way in order to maintain their status in the collective. And that, that's got to be an enormous burden for, um, for anybody. But what I what I think is so interesting is that's kind of what this gets at, 
it gets at the the whole entire idea that each celebrity, each person who's in this um, famous position in the collective cannot be a human being. You know, so whether you're talking about a child or somebody in the, you know, the larger, larger context, all of a sudden there's no identity there. They're living out a role and that must be enormously difficult for, uh, for anybody who's doing that. And so I'm, I'm kind of linking up those two things with what you're, you know, you're talking about your mother as, as kind of being unable to express her humanity, be a human being, and what kind of mm-hmm. harm that causes any person. Right. Well, um, I think, you know, people who were, would sort of come into the presence of one of her dictations and you know there you can watch dictations on the internet they are um pretty amazing i mean she speaks in very well-developed thoughts that are also extremely powerful some people would call it a monotone but you know there was a sort of palpable feeling if you were in the room of this you know this energy that people felt and would would they called it radiation so the sense was is that this was sort of this physical confirmation to people that they were in the presence of something divine. So you can imagine someone, you know, who has been for years watching and attending these events, you know, and then somehow gets drawn into her, in, her inner circle and realizes that, oh, you know, she has a temper or, oh, yeah, she's, yeah. you know, um, may not be organized. She's got people helping her be organized or she's, you know, um, she can be forgetful. She um, would give contradictory orders to people. I mean, you know, so people who would get closer would often get disillusioned and have to sort of back off. And it was, you know, the, the magic, the mystique would start to evaporate. And, you know, that's part of our whole discussion of charisma, if you want to call it celebrity. I mean, I like, I try to look at my parents from several different lenses. I mean, you can look at it from this, you know, religious experience context that people were having genuine religious experiences, you know, whether or not you want to say that there were masters of divine beings, something was going on, that there was, you know, some kind of powerful consciousness that seemed to be there. Um, But you could also look at it from a historical construct, you know, socially constructed view, and you could, you could deconstruct her messages and say, well, there was a little bit of the Bible and there was a little bit of last night's news broadcast and there was some repetition and there was, you know, maybe something that somebody had been telling her, you know, in a different setting, but would somehow come out, you know, and it wasn't necessarily what people might think that Jesus would say, well, if Jesus were speaking today or whatever, you know, and you can get disillusioned in a number of ways with what was going on. And you could also say that this was a socially constructed charisma because the people around her had this expectation that this thing was going to occur. And so I, I've actually just completed writing a new article on charisma, which you haven't read, which is going to be published in the Routledge Handbook on Charisma. And in that, I was able to explore some different ideas and one of the things I was looking at is 
you do have the ontological question of you know people having these what's now called somatic charisma, where people have experiences in their bodies that convince them that this is a a true and genuine divine manifestation. And this these actually could come out in the in the Qigong milieu. Um, the particular people I was looking at um, came out of the Chinese Qigong milieu of the 1980s and 90s where you had these qi masters that were arising in china who were performing these you know happenings and they were believed to be able to control the weather and to be able to heal people and and people would sort of go into certain types of you know bodily motions that some of it could be performative but it was also something that transformed them that they believed was really happening and of course the chinese government had to shut down that whole scene because it was it became this um place where it could become a focal point for people that wanted to transform society and change the state and do all kinds of you know other things so um it's you know jeff kripal has this um um metaphor he likes to use when talking about charisma which is that it's um it's radioactive in the sense that it seems to be emanating directly from the person from the you know whoever the leader is but there are other people who've described charisma as being radioactive in other ways almost like an isotope that will decay um because it's as soon as you start to try to quantify it or touch it or put it in a box it starts to evaporate and change and disappear and um, I did see my parents going through, um, you know, transforming their doctrine, coming up with new revelations, because there was a sense that if they let things get too complacent, then people would begin to think they didn't actually need a leader anymore. They could be their own leaders. They had, they had the decrees, the prayers, they had the rituals. Maybe they didn't need a leader, you know. So there were a lot of shifts in doctrine and dogma that, Sorry, not dogma. They didn't like to use the word dogma. They talked about other people's dogma. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think one person's um, religion is another person's, you know, way of life. I suppose you heard that before. I want to pick back up on uh, Montana and the this thing about the trajectory of a belief system. And you even you made a couple references about archetypes and. It's certainly the way that I would envision it, you know, imagine what you were talking about. And um, I, th I think Ed Edinger wrote a book called The Ar uh, uh, the Archetype of Armageddon or Apocalyptic Archetypes, something like that. And it, it's, a, it, it's, it's looking at Revelation and kind of when that, you know, essentially what he's doing is, is saying, look, you know, we all have this apocalyptic experience. We have an apocalyptic experience when the threads and you know when our world completely goes into chaos you know when somebody we love dies when you know our we have a, a, a crisis or a transformation or um, anything that happens and you know our system even behaves as if we're going into chaos and symbolically that's a kind of uh, apocalyptic experience but then when that um, pattern you know the pattern that expresses itself eventually in all of our lives in in arguably many times when that 
archetype is identified with as as i i as is what happened with this community that you were part of I'm, I'm curious about learning about kind of the origin point when you started to notice that things started to unravel a bit and uh and and what that ended up leading to for the listener who doesn't know the the story about um, the church and there are many people who went through the so-called shelter episode of 1989 to 1990 who feel that it was a time of intense personal self-transformation because all the while we were building the shelters we were also um engaged in you know more ascetic um experiences we were um we were doing a lot of prayers and chanting and people felt that it was this opportunity to completely isolate themselves from outside world and um so and there were new teachings being delivered throughout the apocalyptic period so um i think that there were always elements of apocalypticism in my parents work which were also there on the esoteric tradition which had kind of taken the myth of atlantis and uh turned it into a myth about karma and it, it also became about sexuality and abortion and uh because all the world was sort of engaged in these karma making activities that the people who were sort of like the true knowledge bearers, which was what we thought we were. We had to separate ourselves out from civilization so that the people who were still enmeshed in it could sort of receive their karma. Now, I don't think that the people in the church actually wanted civilization to be destroyed, but I think that there were enough people who, you know, who were uncomfortable with sort of the polluting the, the spiritual pollution that was felt that you know was, you would engage in if you if you were living in, a, in an urban area i think there were enough people who felt that the world was changing in bad ways that it seemed like it was just sort of this wonderful opportunity to uh separate from civilization build our own new sort of new world mm -hmm. that we would be ready to sort of share our message with the world after post-apocalyptic uh, uh so we never really believed that it would be the end of the world and that was kind of kind of a media i mean that that's it's a pretty easy step to go from you're preparing for nuclear war to you're preparing for the end of the world um we i think there's there were some people who hoped that our all of our spiritual preparations would enable us to be sort of just taken up into higher realms of energy and that we wouldn't have to die uh, at the end of, but we were we were fully planning to live out our lives there in montana that's why we stored so much food and we built these bomb shelters <laughs> well and when you and, <laughs> because and if just we, for people listening i mean these aren't just small bomb shelters i mean these are huge facilities right. for, uh, you know, a number, hundreds of people that were going to be in there. Right. Well, there was probably enough shelter space built for two or 3,000 people in Montana. Um, the main church ranch had room for uh, close to 1,000 people. They had a, an underground storage facility that could um, store, that had food for up to seven years. I mean, it was it was bigger than an aircraft hangar, yeah, underground aircraft hangar. I mean, it was huge, and we spent a lot of money on these preparations. And 
you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I felt that we really went overboard. I mean, because we had been talking and thinking about having, quote, fallout shelters for a long time, at least since my father was alive in the 1970s. He had, you know, been talking to some different survivalist groups. And so there was always this idea that, oh, you need you need a place to retreat to if things get really bad. But, you know, all of this long-term preparations and these more elaborate scenarios that started to come out, I honestly feel that, you know, my mother's, um, you know, she had lost a major lawsuit. So there was this sense that, you know, somehow we needed to find a way to reclaim divine justice, that the world seemed to be rejecting her message in some way. And so I think that that was contributed to the sort of onset of this more specific prophecies that really kind of began in 1986. And that was why they sold the property in California. I think there was, you know, a lot of pressure on my mother and our group was in a sense somewhat fragile. She, you know, had health problems. She had epilepsy. And I think that she's had a little bit of a persecution complex after, Mm -hmm. you know, she had been essentially forced out of a number of different properties um, simply by people that didn't like people practicing a strange religion nearby. You know, they didn't like the traffic, they didn't like the noise or whatever. So there was always this thought, well, if we go this farther away, then maybe we'll be free to practice, do what we want to do. So, you know, there, there were a number of factors that combined, I think, to precipitate the prophecies that got a lot more specific and a lot more graphic and a lot more real toward the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, I think that I draw in my book some, you know, uh, parallels between what was going on in her own life where her health was getting worse and the worsening of the prophecies. But, you know, I think the church did survive the shelter episode. Um, you know, the shelters were completed. The they, There was a return to uh, the sort of standard self-improvement message. Uh, my mother was producing all these audio tapes called Save the World with Violet Flame that she was, you know, sending to everyone she knew. And she thought if people did enough um, chants and decrees that they could just, you know, transmute this karma that was potentially going to cause this event. So there are, you know, people in her church today who would still say that we did enough decrees that we prevented this from happening. Um, you know, but what what really caused the church, I think, to go into a decline, I mean, there certainly was a decline after, you know, we emerged. We didn't actually live in the shelters, but we did some drills or we spent the night underground. And, you know, at that after that point in the spring of 1990, I think that the church did lose a lot of members, but it also had one of its largest gatherings ever uh, two years later. And I think what really caused it to go into decline was my mother's health, that she just wasn't able to continue taking the dictations. And she eventually had to retire in the year 2000. And then she had, it was revealed that she had um, dementia. So she had actually, which ended up being diagnosed finally as Alzheimer's. Uh, form of dementia. So, you know, to me, that just highlights the sort of fragile nature of charismatic authority. Mm -hmm. She had been losing 
her memory had been declining from the late 1980s all the way for almost 10 years before the people actually came out and admitted she had a problem. So there were, you know, people around her that were covering up, trying to pretend that everything was normal for a long time. And that's another, you know, indication of how difficult it is to maintain that, you know, a structure that's built upon one person, you know, having, having the ability to communicate with divine beings. So, um, yeah, and she passed away in 2009. So that was now 10 years ago. And I became her legal guardian. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. I mean, there's certainly a lot more of the story to tell. And I hope to tell it in a better way someday with more emphasis on her own spiritual journey, because, you know, I don't see her as a fraud or a charlatan. I think she's someone who is genuinely trying to understand her own uh, spiritual gifts, you know, which she had from a young age, she was, you know, praying for healing for people. And, um, you know, I think that she stepped into this persona that was too large to maintain. And I think that the stress and the pressure of that was probably contributed to her health issues. Absolutely. And, and to, to note this, I mean, you had personal experience, a, a deep, deep connection with her where you were being trained to receive these messages. Mm -hmm. And I, so I spoke with a woman named Dr. Tanya Lerman. She's a, uh, psychological anthropologist and her, her book, when God talks back is very good. And it, right. you know, what was so cool about what Tanya was talking about is, is she'd studied witchcraft and also evangelical Christianity. And, <laughs> and I loved hearing her because she says, you know, she says, I'm not here to talk about what's real or not. Um, but I can say that I actually had these experiences, you know, I, mm -hmm. you, you so, so then it's this, whatever, whatever the imagination is, and I don't presume to know it's a powerful thing. And, and that's not meant to be, um, it's, you know, in quotations, only the, only your imagination. I think it's much more powerful than that actually. And so you, you've spent a lifetime creating uh, having these practices taught to you, having this belief system that's surrounding you, reading, writing, engaging people, and now you're actually in, in, in this kind of meditative state, I'm assuming, and able to channel, and you're getting these glimpses and images and uh, whatever they are, I, I, you know, and, and then speaking to what they are, and then people are behaving in accordance with what is being channeled by your mother and by you. Can you? I'm, I'm of course very curious because the imagination is a, <laughs> is a very um, interesting topic as far as I'm concerned. I don't think I'm to the bottom of it yet, but uh, <laughs> I think when when I was doing, you know, it was very much reaffirmed by my mother because I mean I've always had a very vivid imagination. I used to write stories. I used to tell, you know, make up fairy tales and things when I was a child, and so my mother would have me close my eyes and sort of focus on a question or a problem. And then I would tell her, well, I'm getting this impression of this or of this, that. And she would say, oh, that's exactly right. You know, so she was trying to train me to sort of be in, quote, attunement, mm -hmm. you know. And then I began to sort of hear not ever as a, you know, not ever with my physical ears, not ever mm -hmm. with my physical eyes. I mean, these were all things that were 
occurring in my brain and I would sometimes complete sentences would form or sometimes images would would you know become prominent in my thoughts and so you know all of that I would share with her and she would decide what was genuine and what was legitimate what was off in some way and so gradually I came to the point where I was able to um, you use complete sentences and paragraphs and some of the the work I was doing for her but I mean I think what a lot of people don't realize about the channeling process is that is that it can happen in different ways I mean sometimes my mother would be fully conscious sitting at her desk with a dictaphone in her hand starting and stopping you know to give you know a message and then other times she would be standing in public in front of you know thousands of people with their eyes closed and just you know words pouring out of her for hours and um and those would be more associated with what you might call the you know the healing manifestations or the somatic manifestations i mean that would you know some people thought that that was the only valid form of dictation was the one were the ones that were done in public and then when she started you know privately also doing it at her desk or you know she wrote 50 books i mean a lot of it is edited channeled material that's been edited later on she would edit she said that she was basically developing a fuller picture fuller matrix of what this intent was of the divine being so of the ascended master so um you know some people would look down on the fact that you'd have to edit your supposedly inspired work but i mean i think if you anyone who studies scriptural creation would realizes that often things are revised and refined over time and you know so both both of those types of things were going on and um you know since i left and you know decided i didn't want to be a messenger because i simply felt that it was um it was too great a responsibility i did not want to take responsibility for giving people messages in their lives that, that were going to change the course of direction of their lives and um i felt that some of the messages we had been giving people had gone pretty wrong i, I mean i felt that a lot of people had spent way too much money on this shelter episode and that it had seriously interfered with people's lives and i and i felt that we needed to reform the entire way we were organizing and managing our our revelations and our group and that's sort of why i said i wasn't going to do it anymore and now i think my mother was a little shaken up too by it although she didn't ever acknowledge that uh but i think that you know and she still maintained that there was going to be a war it just hadn't happened yet you know even you know to the to the end of her lucid days she would say that so did yeah. how soon after you left did you begin studying religion so I, I guess the formal study of religion. Right. I think it was sometime in, for, for a time period, I actually decided I did not want to be religious. I was going to try to be atheist or agnostic. I was going to be completely closed to any kind of supernatural occurrence. I wasn't really sure about, you know, that what I had grown up around. And then I started reading different mystical literature. And I don't think I ever fully gave it up. I mean, I tried, but I would 
continually find myself coming back to something. And a lot of it had to do with alternative medicine, which was an important part of my life. And mm -hmm. so um, I started reading more of the, you know, I wanted to know more about my tradition. I started really reading up on theosophy in the 1990s, mid to late, you know, just a, really a few years after I had left. And I think that also after the shelter episode in 1997, my, I wrote a book, mostly was written by me, but to my mother's ideas. And she, it was about reincarnation. And I started learning more about um, different forms of reincarnation belief. And I started reading a lot about the Greek mystery religions. And mm -hmm. that got me really interested. And I actually wanted to go and get a doctorate in religious studies. But I, at that time, I wanted to study Dead Sea Scrolls and Gnostic Gospels. Um, but I wasn't able, I actually didn't have the resources to do it until 2012. So it was a long time before I was actually able to. But I was reading and I came across, I also read a lot of the literature that had been written about new religious movements by you know, Gordon Melton, James Lewis, Eileen Barker, some of some of them, you know, before I ever started my formal training. And you landed with Jeff Kripal at Rice. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the reason, you know, I was first brought to Jeff Kripal's work because I read his book, Collie's Child, yeah. which, you know, is uh, is is his uh, work about Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna is someone who um, was revered by people in my mother's group and also obviously by many people around the world as a saint and as someone who was seen to be very close to, you know, divine status and who had no, was, was believed to not had any, you know, sexuality at all. And something that... Um, or something you know that, that Jeff Kripal writes about is that the erotic currents in his teachings, which had been sort of, um, you know, uh, you could say, had been hidden by his students because they felt they would be misperceived, mm -hmm. and particularly his the homoerotic imagery that um, you know seemed to be associated with his mystical experiences, and even though the book does not claim that he was a practicing homosexual. It claims that that was sort of, certainly sort of his orientation. And the thing I liked about the book is that it, um, it did not try to denigrate his spiritual experience, but it tried to show that his, you know, was experienced through the frame of his own past, his background, his inclinations, and so I thought it was interesting that you could have a psychological evaluation of mystical experience without trying to claim or reduce the mystical experience to merely some kind of, you know, psychological issue. And I, I thought it was elegant the way that Jeff Kripal was able to kind of sort of dance between those, you know, the extremes of reductionism or belief and belief, which is sort of, were sort of what I thought were the only two options. And so that kind of really opened me up to the idea that there was really a whole new world to study and 
you know, then I began, you know, Jeff certainly turned me towards, you know, different approaches. And it, it also allowed me to significantly refine the work I had been doing with, with Jungian analysis as well. I think for anybody listening, I know I have that little voice in my head at times, because one of the things that I really like to look at are layers of consciousness. And what you're talking about, the, the, the term belief tends to bring up the idea of the a kind of a propositional um, approach, meaning that it's a yes, no, true or false answer, as opposed to something that maybe more of the um, the metaphorical languages get at, which which is that it kind of provides a, a, an essence of something. And so I, I'm wondering if we could maybe close in you talking about people's need to say, but did you or did you not have this experience? Or what is or what is not a spiritual experience? And I realize you could do that for six hours, but <laughs> <laughs> if we could kind of close on, on that, maybe. Sure. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up this whole question of binaries when it comes to belief, because it seems that so much of the language around religion is structured in terms of binaries. Are you a believer or not a believer? Do you have faith or do you not have faith? And, you know, these these binaries are promoted both by the religious, you know, and by the secular. It's like they want to put people into boxes. And so, you know, I personally, you know, belief comes from the Latin word to have faith in, but originally that meant sort of what who do you follow? Not, not what concepts do you think are true, but who do you follow? Do you follow a particular deity or, you know, do you have a patron or sponsor that you follow? And so you can follow someone without accepting every single thing they believe or, or preach or have written or something like that. So I, people ask me if I have faith, I don't consider myself to be a person of faith but I consider myself to be someone who is open to spirituality in both secular and sacred contexts and someone who, who enjoys celebrating that sort of richness of our human experience. I don't belong to any religious group, but I'm glad that I've come to a place where I can experience my own, you know, that I can contextualize the spiritual experience that I grew up around and those that I continue to have that I can contextualize them in a way that I'm comfortable with that also involves not knowing the ultimate meaning or purpose of these experiences, but that is not afraid to, to be open to them or to have them in some way. So um, that's really where, what the study of religion has done for me. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful that I can sort of be an academic and keep yeah. going in this pursuit. Ah, look, and thank. Sorry for our technical difficulties. Thank you so much for this. I, I've had a lot of fun jumping into your work, and uh, to hear you speak today and to meet you, I, I feel really grateful. Well, I'm grateful to be on on the podcast, and I look forward to reading your book when it's complete. <laughs> and uh, yeah. wish you good luck. <laughs> Thanks. With the creative process. Thank for you. For sure.
withered sun Go forth, my favorite ones Get out of touch, ditch this city lights Hit the road, don't you ever look back twice Don't you ever look back twice Don't Upon a ten-year stretch in this town of souls, where the faces all change, but the same sins hopeless for. She said, "Son, you've got to learn how to let them all go, and don't you ever look back." Don't you ever look back twice Don't look back twice Cause now I want you to see Just how the good happens Cause when you Fighting off the urge to leave No, I can't escape I'm tied by the roots held so deep In these dens of shame So I'll say to you You gotta learn how to let this all go Don't you ever look back Don't you ever